Let's open our Bibles to the minor prophet of Micah. The minor prophet of Micah. Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah. While you're turning there, let me briefly review where we were this morning. We believe the King James Bible is God's Word in English. We believe Jesus Christ is the Son of God by His incarnation through Mary, not by any eternal generation. We believe that baptism is by immersion only for believers only. The kingdom of God's been here for 2,000 years. The Israel of God's a spiritual people of Jews and Gentiles. Eternal life is an unconditional gift by the grace of God without human cooperation or assistance. The New Testament's to be understood in five phases when it speaks of salvation. Election and predestination are clearly taught in the Bible. We looked at that last Sunday. Regeneration and conversion are two very different things. And that separates us theologically again. Limited atonement means that Jesus died for the elect and them only, and everyone that He died for will certainly and surely be saved. Calvinism is only part of the truth. Calvinism in its entirety errs on many points, but when it comes to the doctrine of salvation, they misapply irresistible grace to conversion rather than regeneration. And they say that all of God's elect will finally persevere, and the Bible does not teach that at all. There were God's elect at the church at Corinth. Let me give you one example. God's elect at the church at Corinth that were weak, sickly, and dead. And they were God's elect, and they died in the impenitence of their sins under God's judgment. And it's always been that way in both Testaments. Right. The elect do not finally persevere. God hasn't guaranteed it, and you're not able to perform it. By God's blessing, He is able to finish His work in those that humble themselves before Him and apply themselves. And that is our goal as a church. We believe that instrumental music is not part of New Testament order. They never had instruments in the New Testament in the Bible. Our fathers didn't have instruments. Instruments are an invention of the last 150 years in Baptist churches in order to entertain the carnal ears of unregenerate hearers who do not assemble out of their love of Christ and filled with the Spirit so they make up for it in noise. But let's come and let me remind you of another one. And that is in Micah chapter 7, we have a prophecy given to us about the days of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the point here I've made before, but I'm reviewing it very briefly. Tongues and healing, as they're practiced today, are not by the Spirit of God. They're a misapplication of both terms because what those that speak in tongues call tongues are not truly tongues. And those that speak in tongues don't follow the numerous Bible rules for speaking in tongues. And nor do they heal. If they healed, they would do something other than screen sick people several times before they ever make it to Benny Hinn's white patent leather shoes. We are in Micah chapter 7. And the precious Word of God has this to say about some days that are coming to the prophet Micah, but that are ancient days to us. These are the days of the New Testament. I'm beginning in verse 14 of Micah 7. Feed thy people with thy rod, the flock of thine, of thine heritage, which dwell solitarily in the wood in the midst of Carmel. Let them feed in Bashan and Gilead as in the days of old. 
According to the days of thy coming out of the land of Egypt, will I show unto him marvelous things. The nations shall see and be confounded at all their might. They shall lay their hand upon their mouth, their ears shall be deaf. And we could keep reading, but the verse that I want is verse 15, and those verses around it describing the gospel day. And there would be a 40-year period of time. How do we know it's 40 years? Because it says in verse 15, According to the days of thy coming out of the land of Egypt, will I show unto him marvelous things. Moses showed marvelous things for 40 years in the wilderness. They fed, they were fed angels' food, bread from heaven called manna. God sent them quail. God sent them water out of rocks. Their shoes did not wax old. And they made it for 40 years by God's marvelous works. There was a pillar of fire to guide them at night and a pillar of cloud to guide them by day for 40 years. Now there's a period of 40 years coming in which God would show His servant, the Lord Jesus Christ and His apostles, marvelous things for 40 years, and they did it. Those nations of the earth that witnessed those miracles laid their hand upon their mouth because they were silenced at the power of the apostles. You can read the book of Acts and see men being silenced by the power, the miraculous power, the supernatural sign gifts that God gave His apostles. Come over to Mark chapter 16. Mark chapter 16. Remember, when I spoke this to you a couple of weeks ago, while I was a-speaking, as the Bible would say, while I was a-speaking, there was a church in London, Kentucky, trying to take up serpents in obedience to the passage I'm about to read to you. And the serpents bit the woman, and the woman died. Because Mark 16 is 2,000 years too old to apply today. For 40 years they were able to do it. And at the end of those 40 years we witnessed that Paul couldn't heal Timothy. Paul couldn't heal Trophimus. His power to heal had waxed old. Even though at one point he was able to heal with just a handkerchief or apron being taken from his body to the sick. Mark 16. This is the Lord Jesus Christ before he ascends to heaven commissioning His eleven apostles. Verse 17. Mark 16, verse 17. And these signs shall follow them that believe. In My name shall they cast out devils, they shall speak with new tongues, they shall take up serpents, and if they drink any deadly thing, it shall not hurt them. They shall lay hands on the sick, and they shall recover. So then after the Lord had spoken unto them, he was received up into heaven and sat on the right hand of God. And they went forth and preached everywhere, the Lord working with them and confirming the word with signs following. Amen. Amen. What Jesus Christ commissioned the eleven apostles to go do, they went and did. And nowhere in the New Testament is Timothy in the first epistle to Timothy or the second epistle of Timothy, or in Titus, ever told to go speak in tongues or to do any sign gifts. The sign gifts were simply to confirm the preached word of men that you ordinarily wouldn't listen to. Who in the world would listen to an illiterate fisherman from Galilee? No one would listen to such a man. Who cares what he thinks? Who cares what he has to say? 
especially when they're standing in important places with important men, educated men. So the Lord made up the difference by giving them sign gifts whereby they could speak in foreign languages, they could heal the sick, raise the dead, take, take up serpents and not be hurt, drink deadly things and it wouldn't hurt them, and that would cause men to listen to the preached word of the apostles. And if you go read the book of Acts, God magnified the apostles. God elevated those apostles. It says they were elevated so high, there was no man that durst join himself to the apostles. Amen. The Lord lifted them up so high. You know, there were several of you showing me a brochure during our break time of a man and a woman who claimed to be an apostle and apostoless in our own city. But they have none of the power that the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ had. And so we pass away from this pillar, this landmark of our faith. We do not believe in speaking in tongues and healing as being a current phenomenon or something we ought to seek in our church. It's not of the Spirit of God. It was of the Spirit of God for 40 years to confirm the immediate apostles and believers of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's continue. We believe the Lord's Supper is only metaphorical. We are not transubstantiationists like the Catholics. We are not consubstantiationists like the Lutherans. We are not spiritual enhancers like the Presbyterians and others who think that Jesus Christ is received spiritually and really in the Lord's Supper. We believe that it's only metaphorical. When Jesus said, this is my body, that was a metaphor. He was saying, this symbolizes my body, this stands for my body, this is a picture of my body, this is a figure of my body, but it is not my body. We understand that about the Lord's Supper, and we have many of our fathers in the faith who died for that position on the Lord's Supper. We don't believe that Jesus meant it literally when He said, this is my body, any more than He said when He, when he said, I am the door. We don't believe that He's a block of wood on hinges with a knob. We understand that figuratively, symbolically, metaphorically. We believe that the Lord's Supper is closed to local church members. When we have the Lord's Supper, we don't open it up to anyone that wants to come in here and pretend they're a believer. We don't know them. We're not in common union with them. How in the world can we have communion with them when we're not in common union in our doctrine or practice and we don't know about them? How can we have communion with them when we don't have any judgment jurisdiction over them. We're only responsible for our church, and so we practice closed communion. Churches vary from open communion, where anybody can come in, to close communion, where you must be of their denomination, or closed communion, where it's only that local church. And that's what we understand as we look through the Bible. And again, I'm not trying to prove these points. I'm trying to remind you of them. We believe that the bread ought to be one Lump of unleavened bread. We don't believe in leavened manufactured wafers. We have one lump because 1 Corinthians 10 says one lump, and we are to break the bread. How in the world do these people read 1 Corinthians 10 and 11 and never break any bread? And we use wine from the grape. The red blood of the wine, red grape, red wine from red grapes that is true wine because that's what was used at the Passover supper and because it was used at Corinth and Paul never corrected the beverage 
We know that they used wine in the Lord's Supper at Corinth because some of those members were drunken. And you don't get drunk on grape juice. Let's take a few moments and consider Bible prophecy in some of our landmarks. Bible prophecy is largely fulfilled. The rest of the world says Bible prophecy is entirely unfulfilled. The Old Testament prophecies about Israel still need to be fulfilled. And they just go to both Testaments and run it all out in the future. There are some prophecies yet to be fulfilled, but the majority have been fulfilled. Let's look in our Bibles at Daniel chapter 2. Daniel chapter 2. When they read Daniel chapter 2, and we looked at this recently, so you should be familiar with it, and I won't have to refresh your memory, other than to say Nebuchadnezzar saw an image and it represented four world empires. It represented the Babylonian Empire, the Persian Empire, the Greek Empire, and the Roman Empire. The Lord got us started by telling Nebuchadnezzar that he was the head of gold. He was a king of kings. And we, just, we read here in this Daniel chapter 2 that a stone was cut out without hands. This was by divine exertion that a kingdom was formed without the use of man. And we know who the rock is here and who the stone is that the builders disallowed, but that God had approved of, and it's the Lord Jesus Christ. And He strikes this image in its feet when it was the Roman Empire, and His kingdom filled the earth. And all those other kingdoms became nothing in importance to the spiritual kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. We've already looked at this passage in the light of the fact that in the New Testament, Jesus and John preached, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent for the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. And in the days of these kings shall the God of heaven set up a kingdom, verse 44, which shall never be destroyed, and the kingdom shall not be left to other people, but it shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. And this is the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now we're on Bible prophecy. We live in a futuristic generation where most preachers and most churches believe that the great bulk of Bible prophecy is way out in the future. It has no bearing. It's not faith building. There's no confirming of things God promised and that came to pass. Because it's all out in the future and the church is going to be out of the world before any of the prophecies occur so that they're all worthless. They're worthless according to their scheme. Not until the church is so-called raptured out of the world do the prophecies begin to be fulfilled. What good are they? Daniel chapter 2, we understand it so easily, it is so simple. John and Jesus fulfilled it. And we have, we've had the kingdom of God for 2,000 years. Now as we come forward, we have Bible stories through chapter 6. Beginning at chapter 7, we have more prophecies of Daniel. And they're, easy, they're relatively easy to understand prophecies because we're given time frames for them. Oh, when you get a prophecy that tells you the starting point, the ending point, you know what period of time the prophecy is dealing with. You know, when we come to Daniel chapter 9 and we read the prophecy of 70 weeks, we aren't imagining something way out in the future because God told us the beginning time and He told us what was going to happen in the midst of the final week. 
We have a period of 487 and a half years. We know the starting point. We know the ending point. We know the six things that have to be accomplished. We read the Bible and we believe it. And they were accomplished 2,000 years ago. We are not preterists. We are historicists. We see many prophecies of the Bible being fulfilled in history, which we were supposed to have seen. And so we can look at Daniel chapter 9 and see the 70 weeks and know they're fulfilled. What, what do they have to do? They get through 69 weeks and say the 70th must be way out there in the future. And we've got a 2,000 plus year gap that was not mentioned, of course. And if there was a gap, the 70 weeks prophecy would have no meaning. Right. You couldn't call it the 70 weeks prophecy because it's not a prophecy of 70 weeks. God's never prophesied in that way where he's inserted some unknown, unspecified, indeterminate period of time. We see the fulfillment in the Lord Jesus Christ. In the midst of the week, Messiah would be cut off. Right. What week? The 70th week. It's simple. God wrote his Bible for those that will humble themselves and be his little children. They can see it clearly. Amen. There's no question about Daniel chapter 9. It started with the decree of Cyrus. It did not start with Artaxerxes. Artaxerxes didn't do anything for the temple or the city of the people of God like Cyrus did. Cyrus was God's chosen man, named 150 years before he was even born in Isaiah 44. There are several chapters in Isaiah that are about Cyrus the Persian because he was God's chosen man to rebuild his city and his temple. We start right there. We end with Christ. And we, when we read statements about there being iniquity being put away and redemption made for his people, we know what that's talking about. Jesus dying for his elect. Amen. They stick it out in the future. Young people, we are not futurists. We know where Daniel's 70 weeks are fulfilled. They're fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, you can look at Daniel chapter 8, and there's two kingdoms measured here. And they're, they're, they're described as a, a goat and, and a ram. And you can read about it, and as you're going through the chapter, you're saying, I wonder who this goat is. I wonder who this ram is. It's so simple. Just keep reading, because he tells you at the end. It's Alexander the Great, and it's the kings of Persia. Look at Daniel chapter... Now, now remember, this is, this is special. Daniel chapter 8 was written... Verse 1, when was it written? Who was the ruling world empire? Babylon. How do we know that? It was in the year of Belshazzar. Who had to die before there could be the Persian Empire? Belshazzar. And he died the night that Babylon was taken. So while Babylon was still in power, Daniel's given a vision of a ram and a he-goat. And as you're reading, you might not be able to figure it out. If you know a little bit about history, it's easy to figure out. But then you get later in the chapter and look at what we're told. Thank God for his angels that revealed prophecies and secrets to Daniel. Verse 20. The ram which thou sawest having two horns are the kings of Media and Persia. Now, that is so simple. We've got an animal that's representing the Medo-Persian Empire. The two horns that are on it are to tell us that two nations came together to make this empire. We know when they came together. Isaiah 13, many other places tell us, and history tells us, because history fulfills Bible prophecy. God promised things that would happen. We can look and see the things happening. God says He gave prophecy so that when the things came to pass, we would know He had told us in advance it would build our faith and we would give God all the glory. Amen. That's what prophecy's for. 
And so we're told right here, as the angel explains to Daniel in verse 20, the ram which thou sawest, having two horns, are the kings of Media and Persia. And they came and took down Belshazzar the night when he saw the hand come out and write in the wall. That night when that hand came out, there was a whole army marching under the city walls of Babylon. Isaiah 44 and 45 tell us how. History confirms it. It was Cyrus the Persian and Darius the Mede working together. They were related by a political marriage, and they came together, and it was fulfilled. Verse 21 says, And the rough goat is the king of Grecia, and the great horn that is between his eyes is the first king. Who was the first king of Greece that was known outside of that little bunch of goat herders in Greece? Who was the first king, and he was represented by a great horn? Alexander the Great. Alexander the Great's the one that overthrew the Medo-Persian Empire. And so we're given ideas here about animals representing kingdoms and horns representing special or unique kings. So now after you read, after you see this, Daniel chapter 8, you know that you've got a time frame. It's beginning with Babylon and it's ending with Alexander the Great. And you know Alexander, Alexander's horn was broken off and four other horns sprang up. We read about Alexander dying when he was 30 years old, his empire being divided to his four generals. We know that Rome is going to come along, so this prophecy is limited to the time of the Medo-Persian Empire and the Greek Empire. And all of this explanation, which I went into much greater detail a few years ago when we studied the book of Daniel, and which is in an, an outline and document on our website, the purpose here is to show you it was all fulfilled a long time ago. Because the, the angel tells us what the endpoints were. It's not to come. Here's what happens when they don't understand it. Let me tell you what happens. There's a prophecy in here of 2,300 days. Now, when there's prophecies for days, sometimes it stands for days, 24-hour periods of time, and sometimes it stands for years. Each day stands for a year, like in the 70 weeks prophecy. Because it took 70 weeks of years in order to get to the Lord Jesus Christ, the Messiah. What do they do? They find 2,300 days in the simplicity of their minds without humbling themselves to Scripture that's already given an end point to the prophecy. They run the 2,300 years way out in the future. They start with Cyrus, 456 B.C., 2,300 years will get you to 1844. This is how men self-destruct on the Word of God. This prophecy has an end point. It ended with the Greek Empire. Daniel chapter 8 is limited within the Persian and the Greek empires. They don't read that. They don't submit to Scripture. They think they're going to be creative. And so a farmer named William Miller took his Bible and concordance, locked himself in a closet for a year, and thought that he came up with truth. And what he came up with was a prophecy of 2,300 years ending in 1844 when the Lord had to come back. The Lord's second coming isn't in Daniel 8 and it's not even close to it. And so there's a Seventh-day Adventist movement that went through two great disappointments in 1844 because of a man who didn't want to submit himself to the end point. When the Lord gives us a time frame, we submit ourselves to it. If the language gives us a little bit of trouble, we still jump in to the time frame that he gives and say, Lord, show me the language so that I can understand. 
I'm not going to bore you right now with the 2300 days, except that it had to do with, the, if you'll read, it's the sanctuary of God, and the Greeks defiled that sanctuary for 2300 literal days, and the Lord took it away. Now, see, we know that. Even if we can't, even if we can't figure out the day that it started and the day that it ended of the 2300, we know the 2300 were swallowed up by the Greek Empire because the chapter is limited to the Persian and Greek empires. They read the Bible that it's all got to be out in the future. And they just jam Daniel 8 out in the future. Daniel chapter 7. Daniel chapter 7, four empires. Daniel 7 has four empires again. Instead of Nebuchadnezzar's beast with different metals representing those empires, there are four different beasts. We've got the Babylonian. We've got the Persian. We've got the Greek. We've got the Roman. The Roman has ten horns grow up out of it eventually. And then after those ten horns have grown up, a special, unique little horn comes up out of the Roman Empire. A little horn comes up that has the eyes of a man, and he's an overseer. He's a seer and a prophet. And all of a sudden, we have a horn that's different from all the others. This is no political king. This is a ruler out of the Roman Empire that is a prophet and claiming to be a religious leader. And this religious leader is going to persecute the people of God for 1,260 years and wear out the saints the Most High, and that's the Roman Catholic Church, the only little horn that was religious that grew out of the Roman beast. You ha if a little horn is growing out of a beast, it has to be part of that beast. And the Roman Catholic Church is called the Roman Catholic Church and headquartered in Rome and uses the Latin language of the Latins that, that ran the Roman Empire because it's the little horn out of Rome. Again, today, and this series of messages is not to prove these points, we've proved this before. Daniel 7 is an easy chapter to understand. It's been fulfilled historically over the last 1,500 years since the Roman Empire fell, degenerated into ten little minor kingdoms of Europe, and out of those little minor kingdoms of Europe arose the papal power, the Holy Roman Empire of the Catholic Church, which wore out the saints of God with its inquisitions for 1,260 years, Daniel 7. The limitation is given by the four beasts, the Roman beast. The Roman Empire ended in 476 A.D. when the barbarians from Europe overthrew it. After that, it was just a scattered remnant of small nations, and out of it came the Roman Catholic Church. We've dealt with 7, 8, 9 in very brief terms. Look at chapter 10. Daniel chapter 10. In Daniel 10, we get an introduction. In Daniel 12, we get a conclusion. And Daniel 11 is this lengthy, detailed narrative of the king of the north against the king of the south. King of the north against the king of the south. King of the north against the king of the south. King of the north against the king of the south. Back and forth, back and forth. Now, God's given us a time frame. Daniel can be understood in its entirety by submitting to the time frame that God gives. Look at Daniel chapter 10 and verse 14. Daniel 10:14. Now I am come to make thee understand what shall befall thy people in the latter days, for yet the vision is for many days. So we're told what the prophecy is about. 
It's not about the United States of America. It's not about Canada. It's not about Mexico. It's about Daniel's people. And Daniel's people were the children of Israel. So all of a sudden, we've got it narrowed geographically to Daniel's people. Then we come over to chapter 12. Daniel chapter 12. This is how you submit to the Bible instead of any man. What does God say? And when, when, the, when the Lord is so merciful to give us a starting point and an ending point, and then tell us what people are being considered geographically, we've got it. Daniel chapter 12 and verse 7. I heard the man, this is an angel, that had come to reveal the secret to, to Daniel. I, Daniel 12, 7. I heard the man clothed in linen, which was upon the waters of the river, when he held up his right hand and his left hand unto heaven, and swear by him that liveth forever, that it shall be for a time, times, and in half. And when he shall have accomplished to scatter the power of the holy people, all these things shall be finished. Oh, I love that. I have a verse at the end of a lengthy prophecy. I have Daniel 10, 11, and 12. And an angel says, when God has finally scattered the holy people, when God has scattered the children of Israel, Daniel's people, which we were told in 10:14, then all the things in 10, 11, and 12 will have been fulfilled. This is not difficult. Because God never wrote His Bible to be difficult for those that have understanding and will submit to Him in humility. If His Bible says the end point is the scattering of the holy people, we know when Israel was scattered throughout the earth. It was in 70 A.D. with the end of the people. The holy people of God. Then we have a spiritual kingdom made up of Gentiles because God had taken His kingdom away from the Jews and given it to Jews and Gentiles in a spiritual realm. This is God revealing to Daniel ahead of time what was going to happen to the nation of Israel. And so when you go into the king of the north and the king of the south, oh, it's so easy. Look at chapter 11. Oh, thank you, Lord. Look at that first verse. I, in the first year of Darius the Mede, even I, stood to confirm and to strengthen him. So Daniel tells us exactly what point in time the first year of Darius the Mede Babylon has just fallen. Darius the Mede and Cyrus the Persian have just instituted the Medo-Persian Empire. Verse 2, I will show thee the truth. Behold, there shall stand up yet three kings in Persia. The The fourth shall be far richer than they all, and by his strength he's going to irritate Greece. You know, who is that? We can start down through the kings of Persia. We can find Xerxes that was so rich a navy of 12,000 ships that took over 1 million men. We haven't done that since. 1 million men to Greece to irritate Greece, burn the city of Athens, and provoke Greece for a long time till Alexander came back. And you go down through this chapter. And we did it about four years ago or so. We went through this chapter verse by verse, phrase by phrase, because we quickly degenerate into the king of the north against the king of the south. What happened? Alexander the Great came back and destroyed the Persian Empire. Alexander 30, and his empire was divided to four generals. One general was a Seleucid that was north in Syria, north of Israel. Remember, we are limited geographically to what the prophecy said. Israel. We are limited in time. 70 AD is as far as the prophecy goes. It begins in the first year of Darius the Mede. For two gen- Out of the four generals, two generals. One had Syria, which was all the area north of Israel. 
The other was Ptolemy, who had all the area south of Israel in Egypt. And they fought back and forth, those generals, to have the supremacy and try to rebuild Alexander's former empire. And who was right between them that was pounded over and over again by armies going north and armies coming south. The king of the north against the king of the south, back and forth, back and forth. And then it all ends about the time of Jesus Christ, when in 30 B.C., the Persian Empire is wiped out. Then the Romans take care of the the people of Daniel in 70 A.D. Daniel, Daniel 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12. In thumbnail sketch form, we just went through six chapters. They take every one of those words, every one of them, even though we're given time frames, and run them out into the future. They've got some king of the north. I wonder who that, it could be the Eskimos. It could be the Canadians. Because they're the north of us. And maybe the king of the south is the Mexicans. They have no clue. Once you leave the time limitations, the people limitations, and the geographical limitations, what compass is going to keep you in, going to keep you sane? You can go anywhere with it. This is God telling Daniel what's going to befall his people in the latter days. Latter days to him, past days to us. The latter days of that nation. We, if you're ever asked, what are we prophetically? We're not preterists. Preterists believe that every single prophecy in the New Testament has been fulfilled in 70 A.D., including the resurrection of the dead. We don't believe that at all. We believe the Lord Jesus Christ is coming a second time because the Bible tells us. And the Bible tells us He couldn't come a second time until a couple of pretty significant things take place. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, there's a great religious falling away and the man of sin is revealed. So we know that there's big events still coming out in the future. But the ones where the Lord gives us a time frame, we humble ourselves to Him and explain them that way. And if, if in the middle of Daniel 11 there's a verse that we can't explain, that doesn't bother us a bit. They can't explain any of them. If there's a verse in the middle that we can't explain, it's because we don't know enough about the Seleucid Ptolemy Wars that went on for that 400-year dark period between Malachi and Matthew. And we don't care. We know what the end point is. We know what the beginning point is. We know who the king of the north is in general and the king of the south. And we humble ourselves before the Lord and say, Praise the Lord for such a wonderful fulfillment of Bible prophecy in those chapters. If we're asked what we are, we're historicists. Those people that follow C.I. Schofield, those people at Bob Jones University in our city, if they talk about a rapture, if they talk about a pre-tribulationary return of Jesus Christ, they're all futurists. We don't stick all the prophecies out in the future. We don't stick them all in the past like the preterists do. We put some in the past at 70 A.D. We put some being fulfilled right now, and there's still some to come in the future. We're historicists. If you have to have a word, we want to be biblical. But if we use the word historicist, it means God's prophecies have been fulfilled throughout history. Some past, some present, some future. And so that's where we stand in Bible prophecy. Don't you ever let a Schofield Bible come in here to direct what we believe about Bible prophecy. Don't you think there's a gap in the 70 weeks of Daniel? There's no gap. It leads us right to the Lord Jesus Christ. Don't let them play games with you with the book of Daniel. Don't think that you can add 2,300 years to 456 B.C. and get 1844. Listen, that was a whole denomination that thought Jesus Christ was coming back, the Seventh-day Adventists. 
You know, when he didn't come back the first time in March of 1844, he says, I must have miscalculated. So he went back in, went to 360 day years, calculated this, full moons, blah, 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 and came back and said it's October. So they got disappointed the second time in October of 1844 when nothing happened. And then they lied to make up for it by saying Jesus really did come. He didn't come to earth. He came to the heavenly sanctuary to cleanse it. And so that's how they've excused themselves ever since. That Seventh-day Adventist, it was called the Two Great Disappointments of 1844. And out of that movement came Charles Taze Russell and the Jehovah's Witnesses, who's forecasted the second coming of Jesus Christ about 50 times. They're all documented on the Internet. None of them have come to pass because they're all speculators that have a frivolous use of the Bible instead of submitting to the framework and timing that God gives. When God gives a timeline, we submit to it. Thankfully, he didn't, Daniel. When we come to Haggai and see that the desire of all nations shall come, there's only two temples. And the Lord is trying to encourage them who were discouraged because the first temple of Solomon was destroyed and they were building a second one. And he says the desire of all nations is going to come and shake the heavens and the earth. We look at Haggai. We don't really need to go to Hebrews. It's plain enough in Haggai that it's obvious when Jesus came and made peace in the second temple. In this place will I make peace. What place was being talked about in Haggai chapter 2? Zerubbabel's temple, which he was rebuilding out of the rubble of Solomon's. But we go to Hebrews and Paul said that shaking of heaven and earth has already taken place because the Old Testament has floated away because it was just beggarly dust. And what's left... We receiving a kingdom which cannot be moved. Amen. Praise the Lord. It's not, that is not difficult. Right. We're not waiting for the desire of nations to come. He came. Amen. The error they make in Hebrews is precious. And there's about five of these in the New Testament. Paul is quoting Haggai. He will yet shake the heavens and the earth one more time. He's quoting a man that wrote that 500 years B.C. That's why he's speaking in the future tense. But from Paul's perspective, it was already past tense. The shaking was the shaking of the way of God's worship. Just as Jesus had told the woman of Samaria, the hour is coming and now is when they're going to worship God very differently. And that shaking was getting rid of all the dust of the old covenant that what is secure and permanent would remain, and that's the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ, which we presently have. We, We see in the last two verses of Malachi... That Elijah the prophet was going to come. We see it fulfilled by our Lord Jesus Christ. We don't have to look for double fulfillments. Why would we want to? The Lord didn't tell us there was a double fulfillment. Jesus said, He that hath ears to hear, let him hear. And if ye will receive it, this is Elias that was to come. And we understand exactly why John the Baptist was called Elijah. Because he came in the spirit and power of Elijah. We are not futurists. They destroy the Word of God. I love Malachi 4, 5, and 6 with our Lord's words of fulfillment about it. And I thank Him for any ears to hear it. I thank Him that I'm not looking for an Elijah. There was a time in my life when I was a little boy that I read all those cartoon books by Salem Kirban, Hal Lindsey, and others. And I thought we still needed to have Moses and Elijah come before Jesus could come back. But thanks be to God for the pure record. Jesus told us 
the fulfillment of it. Don't let anyone tell you otherwise. Elijah came and went a long time ago. They did to him whatever they wanted to because he was a messenger with one message. The Son of God is here, the promised Messiah of Israel. The Great Tribulation, they're all worried about the Great Tribulation, whether we're pre-trib, mid-trib, post-trib. They, they describe a seven-year tribulation. There's no seven-year tribulation described in the Bible. No seven-year. You know where they get the seven-year tribulation? They take Matthew 24 and think that the tribulation must be in the future, take their lost week of years from Daniel chapter 9, stick the two together, stick the two together, and they come up with a seven-year tribulation. Then they decide, is Jesus going to come at the beginning, the midpoint, or the end of it? And they, they write whole books on this subject. And they sit in Sunday school classes with overhead projectors and draw timelines and get so excited about pre-trib, mid-trib, or post-trib, and all of it. All of it. What would the Bible say now? Let me guard my speech. All of it is dung. Amen. The 70 weeks has been fulfilled. Matthew 24, the great tribulation that was to come, was an explanation of every stone of that temple that the disciples were looking at and viewing and saying, Lord, look at how impressive this thing is. Zerubbabel built it. Herod's added to it for 46 years. Look at this beautiful thing. And Jesus said, I'm going to tear it down every single stone from another. There's not going to be one left. I'm going to raise this city to the ground. If you go to Luke 19 other places, that is the great tribulation. It was the greatest amount of pain and suffering ever brought upon one group of people in one place at one time. It's never been matched in the annals of any other war. They ate their own children in that siege. It was terrible. That great tribulation, Jesus said, all these things shall come to pass upon this generation. He said it over and over. When the Lord gives us an end point, that generation, and He tells us what He's talking about, that temple in Jerusalem... All we've got to do is find out when was that temple torn down? When was the city of Jerusalem leveled? When did they suffer enormous atrocities? Did it happen within that generation like Jesus said? And there we are. We're historicists. They can run it out in the future, waiting for some great tribulation. It's already taken place upon Daniel's people. If you're asked, we're historicists. And what that means is we believe prophecy has been fulfilled throughout history, and it will still be fulfilled in the future. A couple of years ago, when Pope John Paul II died, I preached to you a sermon on Sunday evening. I think it was entitled, All Roads Lead to Rome. And if you go to Daniel 7, and if you go to 2 Thessalonians 2, and if you go to 1 Timothy 4, and you go to Revelation 12, 13, 17, 18, all roads lead one place, to Rome. This... Now, you know what I just explained to you about Daniel, Haggai, Malachi, Matthew? Those are ancient landmarks of our fathers. Our fathers in the faith and martyrs that gave their lives, 90 plus percent of them all understood those prophecies the very way that we do. You gotta remember that until 1830, there weren't people that thought the way C.I. Schofield thinks or the way that it's taught at Bob Jones University. They understood these things the way I just explained them to you. Some of the little tiny details in there, they might have been this way or that way on them, but overall they knew that Matthew 24 had been fulfilled. They knew that Haggai 2 had been fulfilled. Elijah was fulfilled in John the Baptist and so forth. Here's another ancient landmark of our fathers. 
Those martyrs that died for 1260 years just as prophesied, when that little horn that grew out of the Roman Empire would wear out the saints of the Most High. When they died at the stake, they knew that they were fulfilling Bible prophecy. They knew that the church that was putting them to death was the prophesied great whore of Revelation 16. The reason she's described as a woman is because churches in the Bible are described as women. She is the great whore holding a chalice. Isn't that interesting? They're always looking for their holy grail. Holding a chalice that was filled with fornication with the kings of the earth. The Bible tells us in Revelation 17, John, if you want to know the mystery of this whole thing, it's the city that reigns over the kings of the earth right now. The last verse of Revelation 17. What city was reigning over the kings of the earth when John was writing? Rome! What, little, what, what world beast, what beast or world empire was the little horn going to grow out of in Daniel 7 that would wear out the saints the Most High, that would speak great blasphemous things against God? Rome! What was the empire reigning while Paul was preaching and who eventually put him to death? Rome. When he wrote 2 Thessalonians 2, and you're welcome to turn there, let's just take up another landmark in, in the matter of Bible prophecy. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, if you go back and read Acts, when Paul arrived in Thessalonica, that city was stirred up against him and he was accused of what? Sedition against the Roman government. That he was preaching another king instead of Caesar at Thessalonica and it caused a great deal of trouble. So when he writes 2 Thessalonians 2, he uses obscure language and he tells you why. When I was with you, I told you these things verbally. 2 Thessalonians 2 is wonderful. Whenever you hear people talking about the order of events that is yet to come, they say, Jesus has to come, that's the rapture, and then the Antichrist appears. That is not what the Bible teaches. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 1. Now we beseech you, brethren, by the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and by our gathering together unto Him. There's the second coming. That ye be not soon shaken in mind or be troubled, neither by spirit, nor by word, nor by letter as from us, as that the day of Christ is at hand. Who knows when Paul's writing? He doesn't date his epistles. 50 A.D.? 60 A.D., he's saying the second coming of Christ is well off. They do, not let it, they do not need to let it trouble their minds. This is one of the great passages in the Bible where you can show a preterist that the, the, the second coming of Jesus Christ was not imminent. It was not imminent because when Paul was pressed in the matter and had a church troubled that he might be coming very soon, he said he can't come until we get a couple of other big events in front of it. Verse 3, look at that second verse. There were people forging epistles over Paul's name in 2 Thessalonians 2.2. He said, don't be troubled even by a letter as from us. If you get an epistle and it's got my name at the bottom of it, don't believe a thing in it. You hold fast to what I'm about to tell you. Jesus Christ cannot come the second time and gather us unto him until... Verse 3, let no man deceive you by any means. And there is so much deception on this point. Let no man deceive you by any means, for that day shall not come, except 
there come a falling away first, and that man of sin be revealed, the son of perdition, who opposeth and exalteth himself above all that is called God, or that is worshipped, so that he as God sitteth in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. Jesus Christ cannot come back the second time until there is a great religious falling away and the man of sin is revealed. This man of sin, we can call him the Antichrist. Paul doesn't. Paul calls him the man of sin. Now, who is he? He's a blasphemer. He wants to be worshipped like he's God. He speaks as if he's God. And he sits in the temple of God. What world ruler has blasphemed the God of heaven and has sat in the temple of God. What is the temple of God? The church. No one sat in the temple in Jerusalem, so it's not that temple. The church is called the temple. And there was a church in Rome. Paul wrote an epistle to it called the Epistle to the Romans. The popes are the man of sin. Everyone, unanimously, without exception, knew that 2 Thessalonians 2 is describing the popes of Rome until the last 100, 150 years. The reason Paul spoke in vague terms is you did not write epistles to a church that was in a city where they'd already been accused of sedition and say that God was going to take the Roman Empire out of the way. They thought they were going to last forever. Paul goes on down through here and says, there's something right now restraining that man of sin from being revealed. And do you know what his name was? His name was Caesar. He was sitting on the throne of the Roman Empire in the capital of Rome, and until he was taken out of the way, that bishop of Rome could not take upon himself the blasphemous authority as being the head of the entire church of Christ and sit in the temple of God and pretend that he was God and have men kiss his toes and damn them to death if they didn't agree with him, which he did for 1,260 years. This is the fulfillment of Daniel 7. This is Paul's explanation of John in in Revelation 12, 13, 17, 18. This is a landmark of our fathers because all our fathers in the faith understood this. It wasn't until frivolous little boys playing with the Bible came up with the idea that the restraining power is the Holy Spirit and the church has to be snatched out. And when the church, some of you that are going to Christian schools have heard this before. When the church is snatched out, the Holy Spirit is snatched out with him, and then some future cyclops with with an eyeball in his forehead and 666 glowing from his wrists is going to come into existence. They're all messed up. Because let me ask you, when they start telling you all those stories about a coming Antichrist that's going to sit at the head of the United Nations and not let you buy or sell unless you give them your email password, when they start talking about all that stuff... What's the order that they give of Jesus Christ coming and that Antichrist? Do they all teach that Jesus comes first and then that Antichrist? That tells you right off the bat, guess what? They don't know what they're talking about because they're defying Paul. Again, I will say to you, let the words of God rule your thinking. That day cannot come except there be a religious falling away. Infant baptism, Mary worship, saint worship, and all the abominations of the Catholic Church. Not eating meat, vows of celibacy, and it goes on and on. That was going to happen. Then the man of sin would be revealed, and only after that could Jesus appear. Now, think with me. And listen, this is is just some brush strokes. 
Because we went over this before. I preached 2 Thessalonians to you. Think with me. Jesus Christ cannot come until there's a great falling away and the man of sin is revealed. As soon as the Caesars were taken out of the way and Rome was overthrown and they had to move the capital to Constantinople at the other end of the Mediterranean Sea, the bishop of Rome became the most important figure in Europe and was the most important figure in Europe for 1,260 years. What do we call those days? The Dark Ages. They were called Dark Ages because ignorance was pulled over the, the entire continent of Europe. Just like we're told here, he was going to deceive all the people under him. They would not have truth. Think with me. Jesus can't come back until there's a falling away, a religious falling away, an apostasy. We know that that took place with the Roman Catholic Church. And the man of sin would be revealed. The Pope would be revealed. We say, where else can we read about the Pope in the Bible? You can read about him in Daniel chapter 7, where he's the little horn that grew out of the Roman Empire. And we're told how long he would make war against the saints. 1,260 years. We come over to Revelation 12, 13, and 17, and the same period of time is given by John, showing that his four beasts are the same four beasts that Daniel had. 1,260 years. I'm not going to go into the timing of it right now except to say this. Rome was overthrown in 476. The emperor Justinian gave power to the bishop of Rome in 538. Pick whichever one you want. In 610, a letter was written that is still had today by the emperor Phocas in Constantinople, giving the bishop of Rome supreme power over the churches of the Roman Empire. Pick any one of those dates you want. Add 1260. We're on the other side of it. Take 610. Take the latest one. The last one. Add 1260 and it's 1870. Yes, Rome was sacked and burned in 1870, but that's not my point right now. My point is, what is left in the Bible to be fulfilled in the prophetic timetable before Jesus comes? Paul would not write 2 Thessalonians 2 to us today because both parts of it are, are, are already fulfilled. The only thing that's left is the loosing of Satan for a little season to deceive the nations one more time. And the way that it looks when you read what's going on in our world, we could be in that little season. You know, Paul told these people Jesus Christ couldn't come for a while. There's nothing in the Bible saying Jesus Christ can't come now. Or very, very soon. You know, what I just told you is a very strange interpretation today. A hundred years ago, universally understood. Everybody understood what Second Thessalonians 2 was about. Because it's so simple. There's no other way it can be fulfilled. This is somebody sitting in the temple of God that is the Antichrist, that is the man of sin. He's like a Judas. He's called the son of perdition. Who claimed to be an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ and was really a lying thief? Who claims to be an apostle of Jesus Christ today and is really a lying deceiver? It's the popes of Rome. That is a landmark of your fathers. If you were to take the, if you were to pull your red hymnals out and don't do it right now, but if you were to go to, I think it's chapter 26, it's about the church. And you can, no, it's, it's not in this hymnal. This hymnal is too modern. All the Presbyterians revised the Westminster Confession of Faith because it was too embarrassing to them. If you went to the, the section on the church, the final paragraph about the church is what everyone believed. And the Pope of Rome is not the head of our church in any way, shape, or form, but is that man of sin and the son of perdition. 
Because it was everybody understood that. All Baptist confessions of faith said that until the 1800s. Then it wasn't politically correct to call the Catholics the Antichrist because along came Schofield and others that wanted you to believe something about your Bilo card might have a 666 on it. And you'd be following the Antichrist if you used it. For 1260 years, you couldn't buy or sell safely in Europe without being a Catholic. Go read Fox's Book of Martyrs sometimes and not the little abridged Reader's Digest version that you have in your library. Go read the long one that will tell you what our brethren suffered under that little horn that came out of the Roman Empire. There is a man that sits in what he claims to be the temple of God and what was once a church in Rome. He claims that he is God. He claims there's no salvation outside that church. He's full of blasphemy and lying deception of people that even believe that a cracker is God. It is so simple. He could not come into power until that Roman beast had ten horns and then one little horn. Daniel 7, 2 Thessalonians 2. And if you go read Revelation 12, 13, 17, and 18, you're going to find the same animal there with ten horns and seven heads. And you'll see the crowns moving from the heads to the horns. And then a woman riding on the back of that beast into power. The great, powerful fourth empire, a church, rode that beast into power to persecute the saints of God. We stand with the martyrs of 2,000 years against the Roman papacy, the great enemy. The reason John wondered about it in Revelation chapter 17, John looked at it and wondered with great amazement. Do you know why? How could a church be the greatest enemy of Christianity? How could a Christian church be the greatest enemy of Christian churches? What a falling away was there. A falling away that would think that to take the sword to Baptists was the way to solve doctrinal problems. Turn to Acts chapter 8. One more before we go home. Acts chapter 8. This is a landmark that has separated us from some people that we hold dear and separated me from some friends that I held dear. Very quickly, we do not believe that baptism makes you a church member. We believe that baptism is the answer of a good conscience toward God. It's an individual ordinance. It's one person and God. Thankful that the Gospel has told them that Jesus Christ has washed away their sins and they're being baptized in a picture of what Jesus did for them to answer God. It's an individual ordinance. No one else needs to be there as a witness. No one else needs to approve them except an administrator of some sort because there was always an administrator in the New Testament approving a person under God's direction to baptize. Later, those people that are baptized are to go find other baptized believers and come together in a church capacity, which is what the New Testament describes for the rest of our religious lives. We worship with others of like precious faith. We come together and we observe the Lord's Supper, which is a congregational ordinance. The way you become a church member is to commit to the doctrine of Jesus Christ and all the rules that are required of church members and to be approved and accepted, brought into a certain number 
of specific people that make up a specific local body. If you're outside that body, you're not a member. You are either a member or you're not a member. Because there's very specific lines drawn in 1 Corinthians 5. And you are brought into that church by the agreement of the rest of the church to receive you. Now, baptism is a condition because they shouldn't receive people who haven't been baptized. But baptism doesn't make you a church member. Oh, and much work was put into a lengthy outline on this subject in which the, the, the point we have here is not to review or to prove in any lengthy way, but just to remind us of what some of the landmarks are that God has shown us that we want to be faithful to. And this is one of them. You become a church member by committing to the rule of the Lord Jesus Christ over your life and that you are in doctrinal agreement, common union, with a group of people that want to form a church. And together, you have one another duties that make you a church. And that happens by mutual agreement among all the parties. Baptism doesn't get it done. Baptism as a door to the church is one of the abominations of Roman Catholicism. When you sprinkle, their ideal is when you sprinkle or pour upon a little baby, that little baby instantly becomes a member of the Catholic Church. And if they had their way, Roman Catholicism would be the state religion and you'd also become a citizen of the nation. The Church of England is that way. Many nations have had a national church that when those little babies are baptized, not only to become a member of the church, but since the church and the state are the same thing, that's your citizenship. And our ancestors in the faith, by repudiating that baptism, not only lost their place in the approved church of the state, they lost their place as citizens of the nation. And so they were persecuted, banished, and driven, and persecuted, and killed. We don't believe that at all. The little example we have here, and you know the verses so well, I don't need to read them to you. Acts chapter 8, we have Philip the Evangelist preaching the gospel to the Ethiopian eunuch who's in his chariot and he's, he's on the final leg of his trip. He came from Ethiopia to Jerusalem to worship and now he's on his way back to Ethiopia. They find an oasis. He's baptized. There is no approval given by anyone except the administrator that was there, Philip the Evangelist. No church was consulted. No church witnessed it. It was Philip and the eunuch. And when they came up out of the water... The eunuch got in his chariot and went on his way rejoicing. He had answered God with a good conscience, and he was on his way back to Ethiopia. If he was able to convert some members of the household of Candace the Ethiopian, or some of his own family, and I don't mean his children, if he was able to convert some and form a church in Ethiopia, we're not told about it. But his baptism didn't make him a member in Ethiopia, and it didn't make him a member in Jerusalem. Jerusalem would have had a few questions about taking in an Ethiopian eunuch Gentile into their church membership. They hadn't received any such thing yet. So it wasn't done. He was a baptized believer on his way, full of joy of the Holy Ghost, because he'd obeyed his Lord. What happened to him later? Whether an apostle made it to Ethiopia? Probably did and preached the gospel there, and there was a church for him to join, or he got it started and sent to Jerusalem for someone to come and baptize some more, we're not told. But his baptism did not make him a member of any church. Brethren, there's many more landmarks. I hope that we will, we will hold these fast and not move away from them. Baptism is not the door to the church. 
The door to the church is the mutual agreement that we are all going to follow the rules of the Lord Jesus Christ. May the Lord bless the preaching of His Word.